Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Creditors Bargain podcast. This is a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. In today's episode, I have Sean Lee, who is an associate editor and researcher at the Singapore Global Restructuring Initiative. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, congrats. I've seen you had two recent blog posts on the Singapore Global Restructuring Initiative blog, one on China, one on Brazil. Of course, we're here to talk about Singapore, but just uh, congratulating you to begin with. I'll also link to those posts in the show notes. Oh, thank you for reading them. Actually, before we even jump into Singapore, which I'm really interested in talking about because it's positioning itself as a restructuring hub, we've been interested in the aims of insolvency from episode one as well. So just in terms of rescuing a company or restructuring being one of the aims of insolvency, why is that important according to you before we even get to why Singapore is prioritizing that? Okay, so when we think about insolvency law you know i think most laymen would probably think about the doom and gloom associated with the closure of a company but uh, we tend not to emphasize the other part which is the restructuring part and i mean we've got to address the covid cloud that's looming above the entire economy right now i think the world bank said that the world economy strength by about 3.5 percent and most major economies are not spared from that and so we're starting to see a lot of governments around the world, you know, take a good hard look at their legislation and think, okay, how are my laws currently good at protecting businesses? And so that's where restructuring law comes in. We starting to think about um, why we think that it's important to keep businesses around. And there, there may be a, bit, a lot of financial reasons for doing so. I think Paulina has also raised in her, in, in her podcast episode about the roles of restructuring, uh, restructuring laws and you know, the possible outcomes that may, attain, that may arise from that. Um, but I think it's also like a social aspect to it. You know, having people employed is also good for the economy. And you know, we, we want to have businesses, we want to foster a good entrepreneurial relationship environment in the company as well. And for these reasons, I think restructuring is sometimes not often emphasized enough in when we're talking about the role of, of insolvency law in general. So th- thanks for that. Having that perspective, how do you think Singapore is prioritizing? Or maybe you can tell us a bit about the recent reforms where it's prioritizing restructuring. So Singapore has um, been stepping up its aim it's, it's a restructuring uh, regime. It's, Singapore is currently aiming to be a significant player in the debt restructuring and insolvency. And I think we've been quite successful in that. One of the big things that has happened in the past year is that Singapore has overhauled its insolvency legislation and it's been enacted since July of last year and uh, put out the Insolvency Restructuring uh, Dissolution Act of 2018. And what it's done is that it's made restructuring a little bit more robust. And, um, it's come, and they've done so in a few different ways by um, making sure that debtors have greater protection, also to enhance uh, rescue financing. And a lot of these things have to do with 
what could be best for a business at a particular point of time. But of course, businesses are only one part of the restructuring regime. It's also important to make sure that creditors are also well protected. So the balance is still maintained. I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about the different rules and regimes. But what I'll probably say right now is that the restructuring regime in Singapore has become more flexible and more dynamic. Yeah, and I think we've heard about out-of-court judicial management in Singapore even prior to these reforms. So what does it provide for and how how does it incentivize restructuring? All right. So judicial management is basically uh, a UK version of administration. This is where an insolvency practitioner comes in to deal with the affairs of the company. And in most traditional regimes, we start to see debtors or sometimes even creditors go to the court to get an application for the uh, judicial manager to take over the day-to-day management of the company. Uh, But there seems to be a trend towards moving these regimes out of court So for example, in Singapore, now creditors can actually sidestep the court application for the the appointment of a judicial manager, and they can do so via a creditor resolution. And I think this makes sense for a lot of different reasons. So let's think about how an out-of-court judicial manager compares to your traditional judicial management application in front of a court. Well, from the debtor's perspective, they could consider it to be a cheaper application. There is no need to go through the court process which could be really a good thing for the debtor because, um, well, if your company is in financial distress, anything that brings down the, the prices of your, your restructuring would inevitably be a good thing. And I think that there's another benefit that we don't often talk about, which is that court action generates a lot of publicity and could generate some noise. And this could actually be counter, counterproductive to goals of a restructuring. Oftentimes, when we deal with restructuring, we tend to prefer things that have less publicity so that the insolvency practitioner and the lawyers assisting in the restructuring is less bothered by court challenges and is more concerned with the rehabilitation, rehabilitation issues. So from what you're saying, I'm just wondering if this is proved more popular, proved to be more popular with small and uh, medium enterprises or is it all companies that are using this? I don't think the benefits seem to uh, be limited to small companies. I think it ultimately sort of depends on what are the creditors interested at that point of time and, and whether the debtor, the debtor company seems to, is able to have a hold and persuade the creditors that an out-of-court judicial management could actually be a more positive uh, approach to the restructuring of the company. Mm. Right. Also, another thing coming out of Singapore, I think we've been hearing in terms of con- convention, mediation convention, that its mediation is being prioritized even outside of insolvency. But especially in the insolvency context, I think there's a lot of interest in other Asian countries when we talk about uh, mediation in insolvency, we look to Singapore. So has there been any practical use of this in the restructuring um, context? Yes. So mediation is actually something that uh, Singapore has been working hard at trying to trying to utilize more in a insolvency and restructuring context. I think that the trends have sort of moved towards more business-oriented disputes being dealt with via mediation. 
you know, we, 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 we tend to think of mediation generally to deal with uh, family-based issues or societal-based issues. But I think there's a lot more acceptance with that. And I think with the passing of the Singapore Convention on Mediation, this really entrenches mediation as a very useful tool in the business arena and especially so for restructuring and insolvency issues. Because I think mediation is kind of this bridging, uh, bridging differences exercise and also very helpful as a trust-building exercise. If the point of restructuring of a company is to, have a, to foster a continued relationship between the debtor and the creditor, well, then mediation is an excellent tool because, as I mentioned, the bridging exercise, bridging differences exercise, we want to continue the relationship between a debtor and creditor. And this tends not to be uh, the norm when it comes to litigation, when parties seem to um, no longer want to be involved with each other anymore. Uh, I believe that this started to take a little bit more traction after like, uh, there were some Amsterdam studies published that me uh, mediation is actually pretty helpful in bankruptcy proceedings. So what Singapore has done so far is that the Singapore Mediation Centre has expanded their panel to include mediators, uh, to include specialist insolvency mediators. And I think that's very helpful because uh, mediation issues were quite unique, even though the process seems to be similar to your standard mediation between um, two um, parties in a, in a familiar relationship. What's important here is that parties are able to have their issues out on the table to be able to discuss uh, in a frank manner about um, the issues that have plagued them. And also the other good thing about mediation is con in contrasting to, uh, more, for example, a litigation setting is that it provides the creditors the ability to make the agreements that they will eventually be bound by. And I think especially in an insolvency context, that's important because we think about ultimately the creditors having a, a stake in the company or having skin in the game, if you want to use a more colloquial saying. And that's quite important because ultimately the debtor is the one going to be continuing the, running the company. And for most of these creditors, they would continue to be part of the contractual relationships or providing fiscal or, or other types of benefits and or incur certain kinds of liability with the company. So mediation helps to put everything on the table. The other thing that I would also like to bring up at this point is several other initiatives that have been generated by, the Singapore, by, by Singapore, such as the SG United Mediation Initiative, which helps uh, the court refer parties to mediation for free. And you know anything to reduce the cost of, our, of our mediation is always welcomed. And this, the Singapore International Mediation Centre has also had a SIMC COVID-19 protocol, which is sort of an online mediation service that's quick and easy. I think the ultimate point here is that so long as any dispute resolution aims at having, having a cheaper alternative, having things be a bit more private, and having creditors, be, like, creditors and debtors to be at the centre of the restructuring initiative, I think that ultimately benefits restructuring as a whole. I think it's also interesting that you were saying there's been an emphasis on providing insolvency experts as mediators, right? So in, in the end, you mentioned, I think there was a free mediation service and also the online service. Would you know if they also provide the insolvency experts as mediators? I will not go so far to say, just to the quick caveat, that the mediation service is free. It's more of the referral is free. Okay. But yeah, but... 
it uh, makes more sense. The, the point here, yeah. Well, mediation. Otherwise, is how still would it a, work, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, mediation is still not a uh, very cheap end of, even though it is the more the more uh, fiscally conservative alternative as compared to the other yeah. more traditional. Of course, but the professionals still need to be paid. Of of course, yeah. I I think. Over time, what we would start probably start to see once insolvency mediation becomes popular is that we'll, we'll start to see mediators being better uh, fit to deal with the, the range of issues that often come up in insolvency mediation. So it will take time, but I think that this seems to be where the trend is headed at the moment. Mm, especially focusing on restructuring and rescue makes us think about these ongoing relationships as you were talking about, right? If you're thinking about how much returns creditors should get, then you're probably not thinking along these lines. So yeah, uh, I think that makes perfect sense in this yeah. rescue package. Yeah, I think the other thing I also like to add and also to you know put a little insert a little bit about the Singapore Convention on Mediation is that one of the traditional things that seem to deter people in the past with vis-a-vis mediation is, you know, talk is cheap, right? We can all sit around and come up with something, but what the court system generally provides is this certainty. Well, under the Singapore Convention on Mediation, um, settlement ag- agreements can now be binding on, on, on the parties. And they can have official court. The, the court can actually sanction those. So we're starting to see that certainty is now being introduced into the mediation regime. So that helps to make mediation a little bit more popular because that issue of certainty seems to be seems to be eroded away as well not sure if there's any data about this already because everything you discuss seems quite recent but would you know if there's been even anecdotally if there's been some um, popularity or increased uptake of um, use of mediation in insolvency well, not off the top of my head. I don't think there's any uh, data on this at the moment. Yeah, and, I would the, imagine this wouldn't come out in the news because of the conf- confidentiality aspect exactly, of it. Right? right. And also, I think the... Uh, well, there's two parts here, right? So first of all, confidentiality of mediation procedures, quite important because, yeah. again, as mentioned earlier, you know, we don't having any publicity revolving around restructuring tends not to be the best for the debtor company but I also think that you know the uptake of statistics on this might not be as important because mediation itself just like restructuring is not exactly a zero-sum game right everybody stands the potential to benefit and so if we're starting to probably apportion you know winners and losers in a in in a mediation then that might be a little bit more counterproductive in any Mm. any events but with regards to uptake yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's a positive development, I would say. Okay, okay, yeah. excellent. The other big thing we hear about Singapore even before the other mechanism is the scheme of arrangement, right? Yes. So has that gone out of use or is that still being used in the rescue uh, process? I think the scheme of arrangement is actually getting seen more use because the recent changes to the legislation, well, both the 2017 and 2020 amendments have made rescue, sorry, scheme of arrangements have become this uh, a lot more robust regime in, in Singapore. So, well, just briefly, so that our listeners know what we're talking mm-hmm. about, a scheme of arrangement is basically a proposal where the debtor says to the creditors, you know, we have a plan to turn this company around. No. We have a plan to have, have you get more than a few cents on the dollar. And so it involves everyone giving up some kind of right, usually to be paid in full. 
perhaps even an injection. So what do you put in the proposal and you know, how do you get support for this proposal? Well, the first thing you probably need to do is, you know, you're going to need breathing room to be able to have this proposal even put on the table. And what Singapore has done so far is have a few moratoriums in place, which I think are quite useful and very interesting. The first one is that you can get a moratorium upon your application record that you intend to, you intend to propose a scheme arrangement. And the second one is that for companies such as subsidiaries or holding companies who are vital to the, to the, to the scheme arrangement, those companies can also get a moratorium. So this helps to be able, to, this helps the debtor company to have some breathing room to facilitate discussions with the debtors and the creditors. And, you know, you need, you need that time to, to, to come together and reach a consensus on a plan to even generate the restructuring plan. So it's having this breathing room will actually make restructurings more plausible. So what you were talking earlier about the recent developments that more pro-rescue developments, were there any reforms yes. in this context yes. as well? Yes, so uh, yes, there are a few other pro-rescue reforms. The first one is known as a cram down, which is uh, the ability of the debtor to tell, to go to the court and say, we have a group of dissenting creditors, but the scheme is good. You know, it's most of the people agree by it. And these dissenting creditors aren't actually harmed by it. So, you know, they should not be allowed to hold the scheme hostage for, for everyone else's benefit. And I think that's quite a good thing to have. It's, where it's a very pro-rescue move to have. Of course, that there are um, certain conditions that need to be fulfilled because there is obviously a potential for such a provision to be misused, especially in circumstances whereby the uh, dissenting group of creditors have a legitimate reason to oppose these kind of applications. So it's quite a tricky balancing act. I don't think we've seen a cram down officially used in Singapore, uh, in the Singapore courts. But what I think I would probably bring up is that the introduction of some of these rules can also translate very well in an out-of-court setting. So there is a great piece uh, on, our, on our blog written by Stephanie Yeo, and she's a partner at Wong Partnership. And she talks about the restructuring of PIL International. And the team talked a little bit about, um, the, about how, how do you approach a, a cram down? How do you approach the, the cram down? By you know, using it as a tactic of negotiation. And I think it's quite a, a unique and novel way to look at a provision at, and think, okay, how can I use these rules in a more unconventional and in a, an out-of-court arena? And it tends out to work out fairly well because what then happens is that these rules become negotiation strategies and they become the, the building blocks of how you would start to draft your restructuring proposal because having these legislative benchmarks can also help to convince creditors to get the necessary to get the necessary approval that you want because you can always tell creditors that well we have the the alternative to your disagreement is that we go and get a court sanction crammed down and that might not be in the best interest of the creditors again for publicity reasons for cost related reasons and you know you be might be surprised that creditors might actually go along with such plans yeah 
Yeah, that's I, super interesting. Having a formal mechanism that can encourage more out of court. So it's what is that called? Negotiating in the shadow of a formal mechanism, right? Right, and that has also kind of happened for rescue financing, which is the injection of fresh funds. So under the new Singapore regime, you can get super priority rescue financing, which basically means that a person who is injecting funds post petition can actually get a priority in being repaid as opposed to the other creditors. And there are several levels of priorities. It can, go be, as, it can be as low as uh, it being treated as an administrative expense to the highest one being having, having secured on, a, on, a, on an asset that already has existing security. So it's quite a powerful mechanism. And I think what is probably really useful here is that, again, the best outcome is you know, not, to be, not to go to court in the first place. You want to be able to work this out with your creditors, even your secure creditors if necessary. Because uh, one of the possible outcomes is that you can actually negotiate with your secure creditors to give up certain rights, but at the end, you know, ha- have, have them to give them some control over the enforcement strategies of, of, of their security. And if the deal is good, if it's fiscally sound, you know, the secured creditors will benefit because he gets greater returns than on the alternative, especially in situations where the secured creditor is not fully uh, secured by its, by its debts. You know, there's still some unsecured debts. So he's happy, right? And the debtor also has a rescue plan is proof. So they're also happy. And I think we're starting to see what, this, what the overall theme here is that how can we have both everybody on the table to get exactly what they want. Yes, restructuring plans, they take time, they take effort. Returns, you're not going to see returns immediately. It takes a couple of years. But having these mechanisms in place and having the ability to use these mechanisms in an out-of-court setting to generate these restructuring plans, it's also a good way to have a litmus test to see whether, you know, are your plans fiscally sound? Will your creditors agree to this? Yeah, and bringing... Bringing rescue financing in the conversation was really important because in many cases, that becomes crucial for a restructuring plan to go through, right? Yes, so more more often than not, when we're dealing with companies that, especially large conglomerates, when when, when they go under, it's usually they are in debts of of like several millions of dollars. And the returns to creditors generally are, are not, it's, it's not like a majority of their, of their returns. They, they get it, they're getting almost like cents on the dollar. Uh, so the injection of fresh funds sometimes could literally mean the, the continuing of the business or whether they would go under with little remedy, with little returns to the existing creditors. And sometimes this is negotiating for a injection of fresh funds is kind of the all or nothing plan, you know. So that tends to be, one of the things that's the most important, you know, if even if you get creditor approval, what's the point of a business going on if they don't have the, the funds, the capital to uh, continue their business and being able to turn this ship around? All right. Thanks. So what I'm getting from all of this discussion is something really interesting that all these formal mechanisms and the reforms to the formal mechanisms are actually helping the out-of-court, behind-the-scenes negotiations. Yes, so I think this is quite an interesting thing that we're we're, we're seeing. Obviously, this uh, the new the, the new regime is still in its relative infancy. It's only it's only been in place for about a year. So we're starting to see what are the what are the various ways that these tools can be used in a in a different setting. 
And right now we can start to see them perhaps being used as negotiation tools, as the, as the basic building blocks of a restructuring, of a restructuring plan to sort of like test the limits and, the, and the, as a, like a sense check for, your, for those plans. It'd be interesting to see going forward whether you know, this practice is gonna continue or what are the other provisions in, in here that um, could be used in a different way, perhaps yeah. the more perhaps the moratorium for holding and subsidiary companies that could also be affected in play. I've also I've also heard of instead of going to the courts to get moratorium protection to have the creditors instead stand a line and say that they're that they are not going to enforce any of their of their rights in courts. Which is quite an interesting, which is quite an interesting proposition because there are certain jurisdictions out there which leave the moratorium protection to the creditors as opposed to the court. What we're what we're seeing here is that we there might be a little bit more power on creditors and debtors to take certain actions on their own, rather than to rely on formal court uh, procedures in, in itself. And then I think it could also be a good thing, not just in Singapore but abroad as well. Um, yeah. Especially if you're not relying so much on court procedures, it kind of reduces the time, reduces the backlog on courts. Uh, speaking from the perspective of what I see in India, I, I really appreciate this court, less pressure on the courts through this process. Yeah, that you've described. yeah. so that's one of the benefits, especially from a social point of view. But how about internally? You know, you're also empowering the creditors a little bit more to have a seat at the table, to make mm-hmm. their voice heard. And ultimately, these are the people who would have to continue dealing with the debtor company if the restructuring goes through, or, you know, or perhaps if they are of the view that, no, we don't want this company to continue coexisting. We perhaps don't believe in the, in the business plan. Perhaps that there are issue, inherent issues with management or the board that we no longer trust and we want out. So that, um, having these out-of-court uh, procedures not only helps rescue, but I think it also helps to uh, serve as a litmus test onto the company's business model, whether this company is still something that is worth saving and whether right. the creditors actually value, actually place value onto the company as an entity, as what, what is the goodwill value of this company. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting and it's going to be so great to watch how it all turns out as we see more cases in these processes, right? Using these mechanisms. Before I let you go, was there any other projects you're working on that you wanted to tell us about? Uh, We still have, well, here in the SGRI, we've always been dealing with insolvency laws, what is the trends of insolvency law and comparing the laws of the different countries and the practice of of our restructuring itself. But right now, I think well, our plug is to go and have a look at our blog, the SGRI blog. I think you would link to that in yeah. the in the in the in the notes. And um, you definitely can see you can see the um, different articles we are written by a bunch of contributors. And I have, as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, have two articles that were recently published. One about the China bankruptcy uh, legis- uh, regulations and another on the recognition of Brazil of, of Singapore proceedings in Brazil. So it's quite interesting pieces, I think. Yeah, well, I might be thanks. That <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the SGRI blog myself, so I'll definitely link to the posts we've spoken about during our conversation as well. You mentioned the a case in Singapore, so I'll uh, link to that as well. Case PIL that's been written about in the SGRI. All right. I think that's about it for now. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.